Genesis chapter 38, beginning in verse 1, says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he did so in such a way so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and that she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the colt prostitute who was in a name at the roadside? And they said, No colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify the, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Several years ago I watched a Christian movie called Road to Redemption. And it was about a guy that had made kind of a mess of his life and made some very stupid mistakes. And because of that he had some people that were 
not looking out for his best interest, chasing after him. And the police, I think, looking out after him too. And he ends up along the way picking up, I think it was like a rich uncle or something like that. And by the end of the movie, of course, he evaluates his life and comes to, as the movie says, the road to redemption. He comes to a point of redemption where he experiences salvation and he gets his life straightened out and things worked out better at hand. Well, you know, when we're following the road to redemption through the Bible, we can often think that because we're dealing with the Bible and we're dealing with God's providing a way of salvation, that it, it would be a smoother road than what it is. We've come across one incident after another in the patriarchs, the people that God will bring salvation through and that God will work through to bring His grace into the world, we find that they tend to be a group of people that desperately are in need of it themselves. And on one way, that's that's encouraging, because one of us don't have some scars or some black marks in our past and things that we would rather forget. So it can be encouraging. But we find as we look through the Genesis, and especially chapter 38, I think that this road to redemption is is a bumpy road. And uh, you know what, I've wrestled with this passage for a, a couple of weeks. One thing that I find consistent with every commentator that looks at this chapter starts out with the same question that I did. Why in the world is this here? I mean, it seems like he just got started in the life of Joseph. And as soon as chapter 38 is over, we go right back into Joseph's life. But right in the middle of that, we find this deal with Judah. Judah does need to have some space in the Word of God because as you're tracking down this ancestor through whom the Messiah is going to come. You know, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when the curse was first pronounced, God started to promise this this one that was going to come that would crush the head of the serpent. Well, who's that going to come through? When you get up to Genesis chapter 49, the firstborn of Jacob's children, Reuben, he gets eliminated. He's not going to be the one because he went into the concubine of his father based on pagan societies. Probably a move that he thought would ensure him the head spot in the family when his father passed away. But quite the contrary, it actually cost him that position. Then the next ones were Simeon and Levi, were second and third born. They were the ones that went in and slaughtered the whole village. So when you read Genesis 49, you see where Jacob says, My glory will not rest with them. You know who stands out as the one that you would think would be the obvious? Joseph. Everything that Judah does wrong in chapter 38... Joseph does right in chapter 39. Joseph was the favorite of his father Jacob, so you would think that he would get that place of prominence. But you know who ends up with the place of prominence when you're in Genesis 49 reading through his descendants and the blessings that he would pronounce on his kid? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah's the tribe that will lead to King David, who will eventually lead to Christ. And so as we look at that, you'd expect to see some things then about Judah, uh, how he would maybe make a good path for that connection to Christ to go. But what we find in the life of Judah is not what you would think you would find. But in this part of Judah's life, if anything, we see the need for the grace of God that's going to come through his son, rather than the stellar character that you would often look for in that path. But things do tend to change as we go the rest of the way through Genesis 2, and we'll consider those in a, in a few moments. But you know, as we look through the road to redemption, we're going to look at two things. I think that it comes down to two things. kind of reminds me of my daughter Hannah. My daughter Hannah was little. She used to come up to me and want to talk to me about something, and she'd say, okay, Dad, I've got two things. 
<laughs> so she was letting me know. When I'm done with the first one, you're not done, so don't go anywhere. <laughs> That's what we're going to look at as we look through this passage. Two things that are within this passage that I think are meant to stand out for us to learn from. The first one is morally. Morally, we see Judah here making a lot of mistakes, and the Bible makes it very clear in the New Testament as it points back to the Old Testament, and it says, see all the mistakes those people made? Those are put there for examples for you to learn from. This is one more place where we get to see that the character flaws in Judah are things that we want to stay away from. The sins that he commits, things that we want to shy away from at all costs. And so we're going to learn some moral examples from this passage. The first thing that I see is a moral example within this is that sin involves others. Now, I think that this cut both ways for Judah, because we notice that Judah, the first thing it goes to is at the time of Joseph, just after they sold Joseph into slavery, which was Judah's idea, by the way, he said, let's not kill him. He's our own flesh and blood when he saw the caravan coming. Let's not not get anything for him either. Let's Let's profit off of him and sell him. So they sold him for 20 pieces of silver into that caravan, as we learned about a couple weeks ago. So it was his idea to sell his own brother. Now, what does he do? They, they go back and they take the coat of many colors to his father's and they see the agony and the sorrow of his father. And I wonder if that isn't part of the reason that Judah just had to get out of there. Because we see later in his life that it left a definite impact on Judah to see the sorrow that his father went to and that he regretted the time of where their brother was crying out for them to have mercy on him and they wouldn't. So I think Judah maybe just needed to get away from the situation. He just needed to forget about it. Well, where does he go? Out to the Canaanites. And he makes friend with this guy. And for the next while here, it looks like the major, some of the major mistakes that Judah makes, this guy's always with him. He's there with him when he decides to take this Canaanite gal to be his wife and then begins to have a family with her. Remember, Abraham had shied away from Canaanites. Rebekah had pointed away from it. Isaac went away from it. There was a real strong influence all the way up even to the New Testament about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And they just were not to associate much with the Canaanites. If you read about what the Canaanites are like when Israel is about to go into the Promised Land, you would understand why. It's another whole list full of things that I'm not looking forward to reading in front of you guys. A whole bunch of things that they're participating in where you just go, they were doing that? Well, Judah kind of goes and starts hanging out, makes a friend. He seems to be there every time Judah does something stupid there for a while. That's one thing we've got to be aware of. We have influence on our friends. Our friends have influence on us. We need to make wise choices along those lines. I remember when I was a teenager, I had a friend of mine that we did everything together for a while, and most of it ended up in trouble. And I remember my dad, he says, I'm not trying to tell you you're a bad person, and I'm not telling you Tim's a bad person, but I'm a t my son Tim was not named after him, by the way. And <clears throat> he said, but I'm telling you this, the two of you together are not a good combination. You guys ended up in trouble every time you're together, just about. I see that with Judah. He's hanging out with Ira. And what does he do? He ends up taking a Canaanite woman for his wife. Later on, he's hanging around with that guy again when he decides to consort with a prostitute. He didn't plan on doing it ahead of time. We know that because he didn't have anything to pay for it with. But he ends up doing it again. And it seems like every time he's with this guy, he's doing something stupid. But you know what? The tides will turn, too, because when he wants to get his stuff back, who does he send to go get it? Ira. Every time we participate in sin, we always end up dragging people with us. Nobody's an island to themselves. You always impact, have a negative impact on the people around you when you choose to participate in sin. 
Now, I remember when I was working construction and this, the guy that I worked for, not the owner of the company, but my boss on the crew we had, and we used to always take cedar shakes out of the shakes up on the roof. The starter ones were great for shimming doors. And so we'd always hop up on the roof and grab some shakes out of the bundle to shim the doors. No big deal because it's the same builder. But I remember going up to get some shims to put in a door one time, and, and the guy that I was working for said, just grab the whole bundle. And I'm, he- I'm like, all right, and heading out to the truck, and I'm thinking, what do we need a whole bundle for? We don't need a whole bundle of them. Take us years to go through a whole bundle of those. And so I turned around, and I went back to him, and I said, what do we need a whole bundle of them for? And he said, just grab it. I said, why? Well, it turns out he had built a little lean-to on his mother-in-law's garage, and he needed some shingles to shingle the roof of the thing. And I said, "Uh, I'm not doing that one. I said, I'm going up to grab a handful of shingles. I said, if you're going to do something like that, you're on your own. I don't want to be involved in it. Here he was involving me in his sin of theft. And I thought, no way. You know what? I, I remember even with our kids, things that the older ones might choose to participate in, we always evaluated that, not just in how it affected them, that was part of it, but also what effect are they having on the younger ones? And that would influence how we dealt with the whole situation. You had to have the whole situation in mind to be able to deal with it in the best way. Everything that we do has an influence on other people that are around us, either for good or for bad. In this instance, is for bad. When we choose to do things, it's not just your life. That's often what I hear. Look, this is my life. I'm going to do what I want with it. It's not just your life. Your life rubs a lot of other lives around you, and it impacts them in positive or negative ways, and you need to keep that in mind as you make your choices. It also diminishes people. I think there's a couple examples of this in this passage. When I think of Onan, there was a custom at the time. We're going to get a little deeper into it here in a few minutes. He had the responsibilities of the brother-in-law. When he had a house full of brothers and one brother marries and then he dies before he has children, then it would go to the next brother to take her on as wife and the first child would be raised in his brother's name so that his brother's name would continue on. Onan decides he doesn't withdraw from it. In other words, he gets involved physically with his brother's wife so he, he experiences that gratification. But at the same time, he doesn't want to own up to the responsibilities that go with that of having a child in his brother's name so his brother's name can be perpetuated, so that it can go on and continue to be a part of the nation of Israel. He chooses to receive the gratification, but not the responsibility of that gratification. So what is he doing? He's demeaning her. It would have been actually more noble, even though it was a disgrace, it would have been more noble for him to just refuse than to do what he did. He took advantage of her for his own gratification, but did not look after her with what was supposed to take place in the process. Not only that, but when you think about Judah, what a horrible example he is in this situation. Judah ends up having what is the most intimate activity that you can have between two people, and he doesn't even know that he knows her. She is somebody that's part of his family, and he doesn't even have a clue who it is. He's pleasing himself, could not care less who she is, what she's like, what she's going through in her life. Not a clue. Only thing that he's cared about is being satisfied in a lustful way himself. Boy, is that diminishing to diminish somebody to that level to where, you know what, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your name is. I don't care what's going on in your life. I just, I just want some pleasure out of you. That's what sin will lead us to do. Sin will cause us to be so self-absorbed that we don't care as much for the people that are around us. This is a person that should have been receiving his care. In fact, she was under it. Because she was married into Judah's family, Judah was the one that had to arrange for how she would be taken care of in the future. 
That's why in the end he says, she's more righteous than I. I just, I just, he just left her out there, find her own way. She couldn't marry somebody else without him arranging it in those customs. The next thing is that sin blinds. Well, we can still see it in other people, but not necessarily in our own. And the reason that I say that is we look at what happens with Judah. Judah gets word that Tamar has been immoral. She's been with somebody other than her husband. And then not only that, but she's pregnant. And what is Judah's first leap here? Drag her out here and burn her. It doesn't echo in the back of his head anywhere his own behaviors that are, that are very similar to what he's accusing her of. It doesn't ring a bell back there. Burner. When we participate in sin and rebellion against God and against His principles, it blinds us to our own sinfulness. Sin blinds us so that we continue to participate and we'll do it with uh, supposedly good intentions. I don't know how many affairs I've heard blamed on love. It's not love. That will destroy families over this and people. I don't, I don't know how many sinful actions have had been given good intentions <laughs> to leading up to them. But it's just a way that we blind ourselves to what we're participating in. Take her right out and burn her. That's what she deserves. Well, what do you deserve? And it takes a real eye-opener for him to realize that he is at fault here. Why is that? It should have been obvious. But you know what? It's not just in Judah. We've seen it, we see it in other places in the Bible. I think of David. You realize King David was called a man after God's own heart? But King David, one day out walking around on his roof, looks down over somebody else's backyard, Urias, where his wife Bathsheba is taking a bath, and David is tempted, and he calls for her, and he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets found to be pregnant, and so David is worried that now he's not going to be able to hide it any longer. Her husband Uriah is being a faithful soldier out on the front where David's wars are being waged while he's back at the palace with Uriah's wife. David calls back Uriah, tells him, I'll send, I want to send a message with you, but tomorrow, go home. Go home and enjoy your wife. The guy says, how can I go home and enjoy my wife when my comrades are dying out there? And he sat at the palace gate all night and wouldn't go home. So David writes a note, send this guy to the front lines, to the hot spot, and then withdraw and leave him there. And so he has Uriah killed. And David is covering it up. About a year goes by and Nathan the prophet comes to David. And he says, you know what, David? There's a guy that he has this little sheep. And the sheep is more than just, a, just food and wool for the family. This sheep is the pet. This sheep snuggles with them while they watch a movie. Now they didn't have movies back then, but you know what I mean. This sheep is, is, part, of that, is a part of the household pet. Everybody in the house, they love this sheep, and this sheep is the only sheep that they have. They don't have a whole field full of them. And, and, and this, this sheep, they just love that sheep. And then there's another guy that has a whole field full of sheep. And that guy had his friends over, and he wanted to have a big party. But rather than going out and killing his own sheep to provide the meat for the party, he took this guy's sheep, and he killed that sheep to provide food for all of his friends. What should we do, David? And David pronounces a harsh penalty on that person. And Nathan looks at David, and he says, You're the man. It was you. You have the whole palace. You've got your wives. This guy had one wife that he loved dearly, and you took her, and you killed him. And David finally repented. But you, you see the blindness that happened even in somebody, a man after God's own heart. We need to be careful. Satan will make it look like we're going to delve into a little thing. Just enjoy this for a few moments. Just going to, It's not. It, it, that little bit will blind you to the next bit. And they'll blind you to the next bit. And that's, that's how we end up with people addicted to things. And that, that's how we have people out of control of their life and, and their behaviors and their environments. And... Because one little thing leads to a next, and each step of the way we're blinded to the next. 
So there's no such thing as a little sin. It grows. Well, then also it humiliates. Because look what happens. She says, I, I need a pledge from you. And she takes his staff and his, uh, the cord that hangs around his neck that holds his signet on it. Now, when you think about those two things, those are important things. His staff is like, that's his toolbox, right? Because he's shepherding. He's leading sheep around out on the, out on the plains and stuff. And so that's his, that's his tools. That's his really only tool. Maybe a slingshot would go with it. But his main tool for leading the sheep around. Well, what happens when he gets back to the herd with the other shepherds and he doesn't have a staff? You know how many times he's going to be asked, where's your staff? Oh, I forgot it. It's probably what he's going to say. You forgot your staff? You headed back to the sheep without the one thing you need to make the sheep go where you want them to go? Right? There just isn't going to be a good answer for where did you leave your staff to the rest of the shepherds when you get back there. It's going to be embarrassing. He left his signet. If I was to compare that to something in our day, your driver's license. Leave my driver's license here. I remember when we take the teenagers skiing to, to get a miner some skis or, or the snowboard or something for going down the hill. You had to leave your driver's license with them. You'd pick it back up when you gave them their snowboard back. That's what she just did here. He had to leave his driver's license behind. And then he sends the guy, go get my stuff back. And he goes back and they say, he can't find her. And so now you got to go asking around town. That's what Judah says. You know what? I'm going to look really foolish. If we go asking around anymore, just going to have to let her keep that stuff. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Our sin does not stay hidden. It crouches up through our, our character and the way that it shapes us and changes us. It eventually comes out where it's a spectacle for all to see. Jesus said that which we do in secrets will one day be shouted from the rooftops. You're not going to get away with it. But when it becomes apparent, it's humiliating. You know, I dare say that if we could think far enough in a, ahead to where we thought, the humiliation that coming at the end of this, use that to make our decisions at the beginning of this, we would probably participate in sinful things a whole lot less. Well, not only do we have a morality that we can see reinforced or taught through these events in the life of Judah, but we also see that there's a redemptive history to it. There's a thread that we're continuing to see march through the Bible that's focused at Jesus Christ. We see it in about three different ways, possibly. The first way is this kinsman-redeemer idea. That's what they were called. They were called a kinsman-redeemer when you would redeem your brother. The brother dies, which means his lineage without children is going to disappear out of Israel. And God didn't want that to happen. And that's why in Deuteronomy, which these, are, these events happen before Deuteronomy is written, but the principle obviously was already there. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses would write, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out. Now, it, it goes on in the passage to talk about how if that guy refuses, then what happens is she needs to come drag that guy to the city fathers and say, he's the one that's supposed to redeem me. If he refuses to do it, it was kind of a weird little custom, but she's supposed to go over and pull the sandal off his foot, spit in his face because it's disrespectful, and then this guy is to be known through Israel as the home of the man who had a sandal taken off. <laughs> now, now, to us it sounds kind of weird, but that's how it was. It was a disgrace. Your family was disgraced because you weren't there for your brother. You let your brother's name disappear out of the future of the nation of Israel. And there were obviously some other practical 
things that happened with it as well. In her older age, she would have her own family to be able to take care of her, which is how it was done. There was no Medicare or Social Security at that time. It was your family that took care of you. When you got into older age, she would have that, having children, and rather than being left uh, destitute as a widow. And so there were different practical advantages as well, but God obviously lists that as his reasoning, that he did not want... It kind of reminds me of President Bush. you remember when uh, the, the last President Bush uh, was in office in his education program? Remember he had that program, he called it No, no Child Left Behind. That reminds me of this, because that's, that's kind of what it is. He, it, God put this in place so that nobody would be blotted out, that each brother would have their descendants, that their name would go on in Israel, their influence in Israel. They would not just disappear from out of the nation Israel. And so that's what God did in this, in this sense. And so he made this kinsman redeemer. It's what we see in, in Ruth, in the time of Ruth. Her husband died, and her husband's brother died. And so she was left destitute. They're out picking grain up off the ground that the farmers leave behind because they're basically beggars. They're on the welfare program until Boaz. Now, he wasn't the first guy in line to be able to redeem her, but he wanted to because he loved her. The first guy said, I don't want to. And so he got the sandal plucked off his foot. It didn't record her spitting in his face, I think, because she wanted to go with Boaz. So she just left that disrespectful part off. But Boaz comes up and redeems her. And that actually brings us to the next point. We have this lineage of grace. We can't help but recognize when we're seeing these people born and die that it is headed towards something bigger. And you know what it's headed for? Right to Jesus Christ. In fact, when we get to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and it continues to go on, and it ends at Jesus Christ. And we see that Judah is part of the lineage that would head to Jesus Christ, not Joseph, like we mentioned earlier. And Judah's lineage, it wouldn't go to Jesus Christ through Shelah, the oldest son left at this point. It would go through Perez, Tamar's son. Lineage always counted from father to son, father to son, father to son. He gets to Perez, and he says, Judah through Tamar had Perez and Zerah, and it went on through Perez. And then he gets to Rahab. And he also gets to Ruth. And then the last one is Bathsheba, but he doesn't mention her by name. You know what he calls her? The wife of Uriah. Even though David would marry her afterwards, but she's known as the wife of Uriah. Four times it, it points to women in the genealogy. And why? Because Judah with Tamar to bring about Perez, we know what sin was involved there. Rahab was the harlot that helped the spies when they went to spy out the promised land. So she had a seedy past. Ruth was a Moabitess, which means she came from the descendants of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters that we've come across already. And then Solomon came through Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And so every one of those connections was either somebody with a bad background or somebody that's participating in a sinful act even that brought these people into the world. And so the point is, when Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he doesn't try to hide the black sheep in the family. Why? Because this is a trail of grace. The whole point in Jesus Christ's coming is to overcome our sin. It's to bring deliverance 
from our sin. When we see the lives of, of, of Abraham, the foolishness that went on before there, Isaac, the lives of Jacob, Judah, now all these different people participated in different sins going along the way, and all of them are in the lineage that leads to Christ through the blessing of God. It, despite our sinfulness, God can still work through the human population, through the human race. He still works through these very flawed instruments to bring about His perfect Son to overcome the sins in our life and we see and experience the grace of God. Well, the last way that we see this redemptive history might possibly, this one I have a question mark on, but it's possibly the transformation that we see in Judah. Because this isn't the end of Judah's life. Judah, when he gets to where he stands before Joseph, he ends up acting very selflessly. He acts with the feelings of his father in mind, and he'll act with feelings for his littlest brother in mind. And so we see what looks like a pretty serious transformation in the life of Judah as well. Through all this corruption goes a thread of redemption. And it's that road of redemption that will lead us to Jesus Christ.